Welcome to the Respectful Divorce Podcast. If you're considering a divorce, it's important to know that you have options for how you divorce. On the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we explore those options and provide advice from divorce professionals. On today's edition of the Respectful Divorce Podcast, we're talking with members of Collaborative Divorce Memphis. Joining us today are attorneys Amy Anmanson, Susan Hinesley, Beth Yarborough, and Julie Ashworth. We appreciate you all being with us today to to talk a little bit about collaborative divorce and uh, this upcoming Divorce with Respect Week. Uh, I want to begin by uh, starting, uh, first of all, I think, uh, Susan, with you. Uh, What attracted you to collaborative divorce? You know, I had been trained as a mediator and I enjoy doing that to help people. But in litigation, you know, where it can be fun sometimes for an attorney to do litigation, it d- oftentimes it's just not helpful to the clients or the, you know, or their family. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I heard about collaborative law and how it put the clients in the center and you work with a team and the client still has representation, you know, you still zealously represent your client, but you work more as a team to resolve their differences. Um, that appealed to me. So I looked into it. I think that was back sometime in 2010 and looked into it and did every training that I could find and just fell in love with the concept more and more, you know, as time went on. And as you know, the more you get people involved and you have your clients do it and you're working with other trained professionals, um, it's just from a personal perspective, it's just a nicer way to earn a living. And Beth, you trained about the same time that that Susan did. What what brought you to collaborative? Well, I think um, it was it was just a wonderful thing at a time in my life when it was just perfect. I actually went to law school in order to do family law. I didn't go to law school thinking what kind of law do I want to practice. I'd studied as um, an undergrad mm-hmm. in psychology, and I made the decision to go to law school rather than pursue a PhD in psychology. And I'd always had an interest in family systems and wanted to be in a helping profession. And I'd been practicing for, I guess, about eight or nine years in family law, mostly litigation. And I was disappointed about my ability to help people in the way that I thought I could. And I had actually considered retiring from the practice of law and going back into the mental health field and learned about collaborative law and thought, this may be what I've been looking for. And I'd been trained as a mediator, I think, in 2007 um, and enjoyed that very much and took the training for collaborative practice also, I think, in 2010, along with Susan and some others, and just love the team approach, love the goals of fairness, um, that clients have the ability to determine their own you know, one size fits no one is what happens in the litigation. Um, collaborative law is where we get to do all the things we can't do in court for these people so that they can have, they can design their own family situation for after the marriage has ended. Amy, you you spent much of your career in litigation. Uh, you You don't do litigation anymore. You look for these kinds of opportunities. Why? Yes. Um, So I, like Susan and Beth, trained back in 2010 um, 
thinking I need to diversify my practice because I would get clients asking for collaborative law practice approach. Um, instead, clients were asking for litigation. As years went on and people saw the value of uh, trying to keep their uh, personal issues private, their financial issues private, um, as they they uh, couldn't settle cases in mediation and needed another approach, um, I found that this approach, the collaborative uh, divorce process, is probably the highest ADR, alternate dispute resolution approach that one can take. And it's through getting um, clients that have high emotional intelligence that do want to resolve things outside of court, I find the most satisfaction with because they can resolve the cases collaboratively and it helps the family unit, it helps the children. And um, um, I I left the litigation arena and really finding a renewed sense of accomplishment and value in my practice doing it collaboratively. Yeah, and, and Julie, you're relatively new compared to the others on on the podcast today to to collaborative. What what brought you to collaborative? I've spent um, on my entire adult life as an attorney. Um, I've been practicing law and litigation for 35 years. And unfortunately, in family law, I see a lot of destruction of family units. I see a lot of mental illness, mental health issues that that largely are unfortunately um, made worse or started by a, a corrosive litigation process where, where the, the goal is is to pummel each other into a pulp and leave each other in an emotional heap and without any skills to continue working and living. And I see children in those situations. I see people left without the ability to trust their own judgment. And, and like Amy, I'm looking for something a little different. You know, I, I do what I do and I do it ethically. Um, you know, I, 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 but, but I like the collaborative process because it gives everyone the ability to have space for their emotional needs to be met, to, to have the, the information they need to be given, and, and, and also to make sure that we bring the mental health of the children that are involved into all of this. And I think that it's a more holistic approach to leading to a less um, negative result. That's all I can say. So that all sounds good, but how do you do it? How does that happen in a collaborative case, as opposed to how it might happen in, or doesn't happen in litigation? Well, I think the main component and one of the things that probably drew all four of us to collaborative practice is that mental health neutral that Julie talked about. Um, and I will tell you, I've had just as many, probably more collaborative cases with couples who don't have children. Um, I, I bet if I added them up, it's about 60% of the collaborative I've done have no children in it. But we still need that mental health neutral um, because they're still having the same emotions, the grief, the anger, the resentment, everything that you have. And even the most high-minded people, when you're going through something like this, it's very helpful to have that neutral in a, in a meeting with you. 
And that happens day one in these cases. And with children, it's an absolute necessary. Um, but even without children, they're extremely helpful. I have found that probably the most helpful thing about it, because you're starting the whole process from day one with a neutral profession professional who's there to help these parties emotionally get through this. They're not offering um, counseling or anything like that. They're here to kind of help everybody stay focused, um, to help people let off steam. You know, I've seen them so helpful in meetings. You know, one of the parties may break down and start crying in a joint meeting or something, or get up and yell and storm out of the room, whatever it is, as attorneys, we're not always the best people to handle a situation like that. And we represent one party, this neutral person, you know, it's just so helpful to have somebody, somebody neutral in the room and they can help navigate those emotions and those situations that come up when you have joint meetings. And I think that's probably the thing that helps reduce the negative effects that Julie was talking about at the end of a litigated divorce. It's hard not to have some negative side effects. And I think when you start with this mental health neutral or family neutral, they go by many names, um, it kind of sets the precedent and the whole case is under that umbrella and you don't get those buildup of resentment. You don't get it just minimizes the kind of destruction that we're used to in litigation. I've heard, I've heard some people talk about that role um, in that one of the reasons that people are getting divorced is they can't hear the other and that the MHP or the mental health professional in the case uh, helps those kinds of communication skills to be, to be hearing what's being said. That's correct. They help people understand themselves. Um, what a mental health uh, coach does, they determine if the client needs their own coach. And sometimes they do need uh, another uh, a therapist to go to on the side. But the mental health neutral will work with the clients to the transition and help the team understand themselves. So. Um... We're just talking about the team meetings, that that term. What's a what's a team meeting for someone going through the collaborative process? So, Tim, what we do is the attorneys with their clients will meet together with the family neutral and often with a financial neutral, too. And in my experience, one of the neutrals will usually kind of lead the meeting. Um, and that really contributes to a sense of fairness and balance within each meeting. And then um, I wanted to um, tag on to what Susan was saying. Not only does that family neutral help to sort of diffuse situations, but they really keep people in a decision-making frame of mind. You can't make good decisions when you're upset or you're focused on your grief or you're anxious about the fairness of the process. And that gets us to a much better outcome of the process that's a very high quality for everyone. And so these agreements become very durable for that reason. Um, so I love to have one of the neutrals leading the meeting and just creating almost a, a backbone for the whole process. And, and so those neutrals, Julie, to come to the financial professional piece, uh, do include a, a, a financial expert 
who uh, is able to provide some really good information that the couple needs to make those decisions. And and I think one of the most important parts about the collaborative practice is everybody's in the same room at the same time hearing the same thing. And there's disclosure and there are joint disclosure agreements so that one party and the other is not left out without the proper information. That's one of the things that I, I think that the, 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 the collaborative process allows us to do is to prepare a joint statement and everybody is on board and has the same information and so they can make good decisions for them. And to kind of tag along with, I think what, what Susan indicated is we do see a lot of cases, I'm seeing a lot of cases as we all are, that the children are grown, the so-called gray divorce. I've seen people in their seventies um, getting a divorce after many, many years of marriage. And those issues are different. The, dish, the issues we're going to be dealing with are different with people that are a little older um, or or just in the prime of their life, depending on where you are on that age graph. Age graph. But um, I just think that the, 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 the fact that everybody gets the same information and that all the disclosure is done so everybody has the same information makes it a more holistic approach in, in, in the sense of making sure that it's fair. I'll tag on to what Julie said, what the financial neutral does. They actually will learn about the financial information of uh, situation, coaches, educate. Uh, they will run projections with, with the client and make unbiased assessments. I call them the financial uh, voice of reality. So that helps when we're all together to show the projections and things financially. So these, this team meeting, is it one and done or how, how often do you meet? You know, that can really depend on the case and what the issues are. You know, I have found, I would say on average, generally, probably the most joint meetings I ever had before we could get a resolution was about six and the least amount was two. So it really depends on how motivated the parties are, um, how well organized they are with regard to all the financial information they have to bring to the table, where they are emotionally in the process. And are they really, really ready to get this done or do we need to kind of slow things down and everybody needs some time to, you know, to get in the same space. Um, but I would say anywhere from two to six, if it was a highly complicated financial uh, matter, then you might have more sessions because there might be more just documents that have to be retrieved. And sometimes it can take a long time to get those documents. But generally, you know, we're also working between the, the meetings. You know, you come together, you have a meeting, you have an agenda. We know what we're going to talk about. Every case is different. You know, do we need to talk about how the mortgage is getting paid or do we need to talk about where people are living, you know, every case is a little bit different, but you have those very initial things that sometimes are emergencies um, or feel like emergencies to the parties. There may be some issues that really have to be addressed first. Um, and then you kind of take it from there. But you're working on the case between the meetings as well. So it really depends on how organized and motivated people are. And that includes the clients doing some work on their own in between meetings. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They always walk away with homework. Yes. Yeah. So in the end, what what do the clients have 
that um, uh, becomes their divorce decree. They have right. an agreement, a marital dissolution agreement, if there's children involved, a permanent parenting plan. And it's discussed who's going to be filing the complaint for divorce. And it is resolved outside of court in the sense that there's no, nothing filed. There's no depositions. There's no discovery requests. There's no subpoenas. Um, and as Julie indicated, we have a Supreme Court rule that provides for this collaborative divorce process and requires in every collaborative case, a sworn statement of all assets and liabilities, all contingent assets and liabilities, and the parties sign it under oath, and they keep this do a document along with their attorneys um, for the purposes of full disclosure and transparency. And I think that is the that's what makes the collaborative process such a high quality in the ADR process. If you're going to choose an alternate dispute resolution mechanism, you've got full disclosure and transparency with the collaborative process because there is a Supreme Court rule that requires it. Beth, is, is, the, is the result a better product than if it had gone to court? Oh, 100% it is because, because of that transparency and because they can rely on the fact that, you know, they've had the help of a financial expert to look at their, you know, what they have to pay out as, you know, debt, what assets they have to divide. Um, when we're looking at spousal support, you know, that's always such an area of anxiety for any client who's in litigation because any payor of alimony who's been ordered to pay it feels like, oh, I won't be able to afford to do this and this is not going to be fair to me. And anybody who's receiving it feels like, oh, I won't be able to make it. And if we've done it with this process, then the financial neutral has been able to look with the parties and with their attorneys at these numbers and talk about how this is going to work. And um, so I think that the parties leave with an agreement that they think is fair, but also that they realize that they're going to be OK. Yeah. I don't see that in litigation. And and it's their product, I guess, versus a judge's product. Correct. The, the one thing that I enjoy about it is that this restores, in my opinion, the power to the, the, the spouses to, to be in charge of their destiny as opposed to leaving in the hands of a judge and a couple of lawyers and maybe a guardian litem. And, and I think that it's empowering to people to, to make, a, make an exit, you know, of a relationship that they created together. So uh, we have uh, coming up here um, in early March, March 4th through 8th is Divorce with Respect Week. And it's an opportunity for people in, in Memphis to uh, have a conversation with uh, one of your members, a divorce professional in the Memphis area. Um, if they were, if someone was to uh, plan to do a consultation, how should somebody prepare? for that initial consultation or initial conversation with a divorce professional? That's a great question, Tim. I would I would suggest that anybody that, and I, I offer collaborative to every client that consults with me always. Um, sometimes we identify that it's not going to work for one reason or another, but I offer it to everyone. And I will tell people to come prepared with 
questions for me about how does the process work? Why is it a safe process for them? Um, Because they're uneasy about it. They often are not familiar. Um, And then certainly, you know, coming prepared with what are the goals that they have for how they want to design their post-divorce family life. And that allows me to provide a lot of reassurance about how this is the arena where most of what they want to get out of their divorce process is going to be available to them in this process, but not in litigation. And that is the, you know, conserving the financial resources, um, protecting and valuing and prioritizing not just the children's well-being and the schedule that the children should follow between parents, but, you know, creating and maybe even improving the co-parenting relationship. Um, and so I just encourage people to think about what are their fears about doing this process if they're aware of it um, so that we can talk about that. And then to think about what's most important to them and to think about what solutions they might want to request that might not be available to them in court, because this is where we can really customize that and put together things that work for that particular family. Anything else that you all might recommend in terms of how you prepare for an initial consultation? I think it's important for someone coming in for a consultation for a divorce or any kind of family law issue, um, they come in scared. You know, I think a good way to prepare is just to take a deep breath, do a little silent meditation, come in here. Let's just, I try to put somebody at ease. You know, sometimes they don't know anything. Or maybe they they think they know everything and just getting somebody to just take a couple of deep breaths and slow down and let's talk about it and every and just be reassuring. Um, obviously, it's very helpful if the client has some kind of idea of what their finances are like. Like Beth said, what are the solutions? What do you want? But many times people are coming in with their hair on fire because they're just upset over the whole thing and they don't. They maybe not know what they want. They're just scared, which is completely understandable. And another reason why this process, the collaborative process is so good, because it's not as scary. And they have some, you know, because it's client centered and they're involved every step of the way, you know, they can start getting their a little bit of control back because they oftentimes feel like things are out of control. They don't have any control over anything. But when we show them that they're in the center of this, they're making the decisions. We're helping. It's not a bossy A-type attorney telling the client, this is what you're going to do, and this is what you want, and this is what the solution is. What do you want? What do you think the solution should look like? And we're there to help. Um, I think that would that would help. The biggest thing is just to try to put your mind at ease mm-hmm. and take a deep breath. I always encourage uh, my clients if they want uh, to come in to, to bring a support person with them because sometimes sure. an extra set of ears is always a wonderful idea and they may have some different perspectives on you know what the client is, is talking about or thinking or the way the other person's acting. Tim, I would just add that um, I would want them to maybe read uh, about the collaborative process on the Memphis Divorce Collaborative Alliance uh, website. 
and other uh, websites that are out there. And to be honest with their attorney um, when they meet with them and to be able to express how they handle and manage uh, conflict. What's the style with their with their spouse about uh, handling conflict management and whether or not they have the mutual respect or empathy? Because this process is not for everyone. And the earlier you go through some of these questions, especially on the initial consultation, the um, the better the lawyer can can assess whether or not this might this will be a successful collaboration or not because the collaboration process if the parties cannot agree to it the lawyers cannot represent them in court they have to get new lawyers so um that is something that needs to be stressed to them at the initial consultation okay well we will put the link to the website in the show notes so if you want to go to uh, the uh, Memphis website uh, to learn more about collaborative. Uh, you can click on the link in the show notes below. Um, uh, Amy Amundsen, uh, Susan Hinesley, uh, Beth Yarborough, Julie Ashworth, thank you all for joining us on the Respectful Divorce Podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this reminder that Divorce with Respect Week is March 4th through 8th. You can schedule a free consultation with a, uh, a divorce professional during Divorce with Respect Week. That website is divorcewithrespectweek.com. This is Tim Crouch reminding you that collaborative divorce is a better way to untie the knot.